Good morning, First Baptist. One quick clarification. I, Gary, I appreciate your kind words. I, w- I was actually civil service. I, wasn't, I can't claim the honor of being a warfighter. I was an engineer, so with pocket protector and calculator in hand, I supported the warfighter, but wasn't one. I can't claim that honor, but thank you. Um, he was one of the most brilliant men that I personally have ever come into contact with. It's a guy by the name of Dan Wallace. And Dan Wallace works at Dallas Theological Seminary as a professor. Uh, he's a Greek professor. And he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the Greek word the. A page turner, right? Yeah. <laughs> Hundreds of pages on the Greek word the. Uh, but he's a brilliant guy. As a matter of fact, he's trained many of the pastors that you may be familiar with. Andy Stanley, Matt Chandler. All these guys kind of sat under his tutelage. But he had noticed that his academic approach was taking a toll on his Christian life. It's one I can actually really identify with very closely. Notice what Dan Wallace says about his academic approach. He says this, The last few years have shown me that my spiritual life had gotten off track. That somehow I, along with many others in my church tradition, have learned to do without the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Things would change in a very abrupt way for Dr. Dan Wallace. Because in the winter of 1991, his son Andy was diagnosed with a very rare form of kidney cancer. It was called renal cell carcinoma. And to the very few who had contracted this, uh, they had not survived more than two years after this diagnosis. Now, this was a game changer for him. As a matter of fact, he wrote a book as a result of this event in his son Andy's life. And in that book, it's called Who's Afraid of the Holy Spirit? You can actually read the whole thing online. He talks about what it was like after Andy's kidney was removed they elected to do chemotherapy. And he said this, he said, I cannot adequately describe what the next six months were like for Andy, for me, and his mother, for his three brothers. But I can tell you that I was an emotional wasteland. I was angry with God, and I found him to be quite distant. Now remember, this is a guy, he's dedicated his whole life to training pastors. And he he says, here was this precious little boy who was losing his hair and losing weight. At one point, he only weighed 45 pounds. His twin brother at that time weighed 85 pounds. He said Andy was so weak that we had to carry him everywhere, even to the bathroom. Now I'm going to say it again. This is a man who had dedicated his entire life to the interpretation of the New Testament scriptures, to teaching young and upcoming pastors the Greek language so they could preached to their congregations. He'd spent his life to the study of the scriptures in depth. And yet, listen to these words. I actually found this to be shocking the first time I read it. And then I came to understand what he was saying. He said this. Through this experience, I found that the Bible was not adequate. I needed God in a personal way, not as an object of my study, 
but as friend, guide, comforter. I needed an experience of the Holy One. Quite frankly, I found that the Bible was not the answer. I found the scriptures to be helpful, even authoritatively helpful as a guide. But without feeling God, the Bible gave me little solace. He said, in the midst of this summer from hell, I began to examine what had become of my faith. I found a longing to get closer to God, but found myself unable to do, throw, do so through my normal means, study, reading the scripture, and study. I believed that I had depersonalized God so much that when I really needed him, I didn't know how to relate. I looked for God, but all I found was a suffocation of the spirit in my evangelical tradition as well as in my own heart. I was shocked when I first read that. And this is a man who absolutely believes in the authority, the inerrancy, and the inspiration of the scriptures. He taught these doctrines to me, as a matter of fact. But see, as in most cases concerning our walk with God, there's some extremes that have to be avoided. You see, over here, there's frankly a charismatic movement that says that if you have not had a completely emotionally charged experience of God, they'll doubt your salvation. But, over here at the other extreme, the Bible can become the fourth member of the Trinity. Not as a guide, but relied on almost as God himself. You see, both the extremes are to be avoided. Over here, frankly, you don't have to be a, even a Christian to have an emotionally charged experience. But at the same time, over here, there are lots of unbelievers that study the Word of God and have some head knowledge of Him. See, Dan Wallace would say that his had become a cognitive faith, a Christianity from the neck up. Now, there's an extreme there that we want to avoid. Dan Wallace, at this time, was veering over in this direction, and he realized that he had gone too far, that he was missing the God of the Bible in the midst of studying the Bible. And that's something we never want to do. But oftentimes in our tradition, we miss this third person of the Trinity. And that's something we're going to grapple with this morning um, what do I do then with the third person, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit? I've often struggled this with myself. Is he, is he kind of like a wisp of smoke? Is he, how's he indwelling all of us? I, all of these things come to my mind, and it raises this question, who or what is the Holy Spirit? Who or what is the Holy Spirit? We're continuing this series. As a matter of fact, we're going to wind it up today on who is God. Everything about us will be determined by how we answer this question. And the question came from Jesus to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And the question comes to us, who do we say that Christ is? As a matter of fact, what you believe or who you believe the Holy Spirit to be will also hinge on this because it was Christ himself who sent the Holy Spirit to us. So I want to dive into this topic. We'll look at this. We'll answer three questions. First of all, who or what is the Holy Spirit? And I'm going to give you a hint. He's a who, right? The Holy Spirit is not a what. He's a who. 
Secondly, what does the Holy Spirit do? And finally, how do we respond to the Holy Spirit? How do we respond to the Holy Spirit? So I want to first of all jump into this question, who is the Holy Spirit? And the first thing I want to note is that he is a person. Like the Father and like the Son, he is a person. Meaning, meaning that he has aspects, not totally unlike you and I, of personhood. Three aspects I want to talk about. And first of all, um, let me talk about his, um, his intelligence. His intelligence. So he has intelligence. It says there in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 13, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And listen to this. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have, not, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So this is part of the personhood of the Holy Spirit. He has intelligence. He thinks. Look at what he's doing here. This is mind-blowing. He actively searches out the mysteries of God. The depths of what God knows. And only an infinite mind can understand an infant mind. And then what does the Holy Spirit do? He teaches us. As a matter of fact, the very early church, the second, third centuries, this was the, this was the operation of the Holy Spirit that they were most concerned of. How do we learn from the Holy Spirit? Dr. Harrell, um, I want to share this uh, quote. Uh, this, is, this was my Trinitarian professor in seminary, said, in 2nd and 3rd century documents, the overwhelming emphasis concerning the Spirit's activity was upon his teaching believers the deeper truths of God, both on a subjective level and through the Scripture. So yes, they were reading the Scriptures. Yes, they were understanding what the Scriptures said. But you know what? They knew that in ways that they didn't even know were happening, they were being taught by the Holy Spirit himself. Yes, they have the scriptures, and yes, they were trusting in the Holy Spirit. So he has intelligence. Uh, he teaches us the infinite mind of God. And then secondly, he also has a will. Notice 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And this verse is talking about the gifting of the body. See, in this, we see that he has a will. He has choices that he makes. Now, what does this mean? This means that the Holy Spirit decided how you were going to be gifted to serve the body. He decided that. This is why we shouldn't get jealous of people when they're better at us than something, because it was the Holy Spirit's decision to do what he did. So he has a will. He makes choices. Again, not totally unlike the way you and I have a will. As persons, we also make choices. So does the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, he has emotions. Hebrews 10, 29. How much worse punishment? This is speaking of unbelievers. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And, and then notice this. And has outraged the Spirit of grace. 
So this is speaking of anger. The Holy Spirit is angry at people's resistance in trusting and believing in the work that Jesus Christ did. He has emotions. Not all of them are pleasant. Again, not totally unlike us. But then there's ways in which the Holy Spirit is, is not at all like us because he's also fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. And then this one passage where Peter is confronting a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who had lied about some money they had given from some land they acquired. This is what the text says. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And then listen to this. You have not lied to man, but to who? You've lied to God. So the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit he is a person. He has intelligence, he has a will, he has emotions, and he's also fully God. That means omniscient, omnipresent. All of these attributes, all-powerful. So the Holy Spirit, who is he? He is a person, and he is God. Similar to the Father and similar to the Son. So, um, what then does the Holy Spirit do? What's his activity? What is he up to? I want to point to four activities here of the Holy Spirit, four things that he does. This is not an exhaustive list, but I'm focusing on this. First of all, he empowers. He empowers. This means that he provides life, spiritual life and physical life. In John 3, 6, and 7, this is Christ speaking, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. When you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit came and he did an operation on you. You didn't know it was happening. This is, this is where the scriptures inform our experience. Because when you became a Christian, maybe you got up out of your seat and walked down an aisle. Maybe you were driving in your car and the gospel made sense. Maybe, who knows how it happened. But see, when that happened, you were made something that you were not before. This is called regeneration. And that word in and of itself is mysterious. And I love the way Wayne Grudem says this. He said, exactly what happens in regeneration when you're born again, when you're made new, is mysterious to us. We know that somehow we who were spiritually dead have been made alive to God. And in a very real sense, we have been born again. But we don't understand how this happens or what exactly God does to us to give us this new spiritual life. You are not the person you were before. And day by day, moment by moment, you're becoming more like Christ. And it's not always a pleasant process. But you have been made new. You've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is His activity. And then secondly, He purifies. He purifies. Uh, this, this is from 1 Corinthians 6.11. Paul's speaking to these Corinthians, and he said some pretty nasty things about them. They were adulterers, swindlers, thieves. But then he says this, and such were some of you, all those nasty things. But he says you were washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And notice all that is past tense. All that crummy stuff that Chad Cowan has done, and there's plenty, he has been purified of. God doesn't look at me and see all that junk. I can let it go. It's gone. It's washed away. Yes, there are some consequences that live on. But I've been cleansed of it. I've been purified. Praise God. So, third, he also reveals. He reveals God himself. Now, I think he primarily does this in four ways. Four ways the Holy Spirit reveals God. First of all, by inspiring Scripture. In 2 Peter 1.21, it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What carried along by the Holy Spirit? What, what is he talking about? This whole process of, the, of God giving us the Bible, it, frankly, it could be a little confusing. Yeah, I always pictured somebody kind of like sitting and dictating a letter, right? And, and, the, the, you know, something like that. But that's not at all how it worked. See, God used 100% of the man, his personality, uh, his sense of humor, his style of writing when the scriptures were inspired. At the same time, it's 100% God behind the scriptures. It's 100% man, 100% God. Does that sound familiar, by the way? So he inspired the scriptures. And the purpose of the Bible is to show us God. And by the way, according to the scriptures, studying them is essential. But only studying them is not enough. Because according to the Bible, the Bible's not enough. We need the God of the Bible. And we need to be in community. And we need to be in church. And we need to be worshiping. Yes, study is important. But it's not everything. They continue to speak us to us to guide us in that relationship. Secondly, he gives evidence of God's presence. He gives evidence of God's presence. In a very real way, the Holy Spirit makes God known. We see one instance of this in the Old Testament, Numbers eleven twenty-five. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, speaking to Moses, and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not continue doing it. So these elders miraculously started to prophesy. And this is attributed to the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, making God known to the people. Making God known to the people. Then thirdly, he also guides God's people. He reveals by guiding God's people. We see this in Galatians 5, 16, and 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So we've, even as Christians, we've got this fleshly part of us, right? It's like working against us. We're still sinning, even though we're purified and indwelt by the Spirit. And He's working in us, but we still struggle with the flesh. We struggle with sin. Uh, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, right? So we're not here to just, we don't have to keep all the laws of the Old Testament. See, we're receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit now. And He leads us. He guides us. He helps us make 
really hard decisions. And then we decide. See, because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we can make decisions and we can rest. We don't have to be eaten up by anxiety because the Holy Spirit is there. He's helping us. Again, when we make decisions, it's 100% God. It's 100% man. When good things happen, we don't take credit for it. We praise God. And we also have to live with the consequences of our bad choices. But we can trust God even in those moments that he's using those bad circumstances to make us into something we could never be. We're getting into this cooperation that we'll see more and more. So, the Holy Spirit helps us make decisions. And in that, we even experience positive feelings. Like love and joy and peace. Actually, later in the book of Galatians, we'll talk about this fruit of the Spirit that comes along. And all of those things, the love and the joy and the peace, not just in favorable circumstances, but also in unfavorable, in bad circumstances. So he guides us. We depend on him. And then fourthly, he teaches us. He teaches us. I talked about this a little bit already. One more verse, John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the fathers will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. There are things that you and I would never know were it not for the Holy Spirit. We would not have believed the gospel were it not for the Holy Spirit. And he's unifying us. He's, he's bringing us together. As a matter of fact, the next thing, the next activity of the Holy Spirit is he unifies. He unifies. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So this is a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift that you're given to use. For us. By the way, that gift isn't, it's not a gift to you. It's not your gift. You're given the gift. Turn around and gift to the rest of us. You see how that works? That is how a spiritual gift works. For the common good. And that's what, see, it's when the body of Christ, when we're using our gifts, it brings us together. Some teach, some preach. Some of you are amazing connectors. You know how to build community. Some of you, and you know what? Some of you aren't using your gifts. And we need you using your gifts. We need you. We're given gifts by the Holy Spirit to build up and unify the body of Christ. So that's a glimpse of the work of the Spirit. And then finally, how do we respond to the Holy Spirit? How do we respond to the Holy Spirit? I'm going to get two don'ts and one do. Two don'ts and one do here. And I think when we approach the Holy Spirit, when we approach God in general, it kind of reminds me of the way my little cousin uh, approached her grandmother. We'll call her Susie. Keep her anonymous. So my aunt, her grandmother, had some problems with little Susie. And uh, she went to pick little Susie up one day and said, um, Susie, are, are we going to be a good girl today? Susie had a very interesting, very interesting answer. She said, Grandma, if you be nice to me, I'll be nice to you. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think we come to God that way. God, you be nice to me. You keep me in the circumstances I want to be in. You keep me happy, and I'll do your thing. 
But see, it doesn't work like that because in the same way the guardian knows what's best for the child, which isn't always what the child wants, God knows what's best for us. So how then do we respond? Uh, when you start going through passages about how we as human beings respond or interact with the Holy Spirit, we get commands on what not to do. So first of all, two commands on what not to do. One is don't resist. Uh, don't resist. In Acts 7.51, it says, this is the Apostle Stephen speaking just before he was stoned to death. He's speaking to Jewish leaders. He said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, and so do you. Now he's speaking against their lack of faith. That is how people resist the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're a Christian, you've overcome that resistance, right? You didn't resist. You, the Holy Spirit wooed you, and you came to faith in Jesus. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit that you came to faith in Christ. But then it's a continued not resisting. This goes on. It doesn't just stop when we become Christians. Uh, we keep this up. Last week, I spoke of Landry's willingness to jump off the changing table into Daddy's arms. And we have to keep doing that. We keep jumping off the table. We keep jumping into our Heavenly Father's arms because the, the stakes go up as we go along in the Christian life. So we don't resist. And second, and this was a warning that Paul gave the Ephesian church. We see it in Ephesians 4.30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, he said, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of re redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And this is a difficult command. Um, and, you know, and the, when I see this, I think, well, man, I don't want to make God sad. So, like, like, how do I not do that? But it's interesting that our actions make God sad, or they can. I love the way Brian Chappell put it. He said, the words challenge our theology as much as they encourage our hearts. We are not accustomed to thinking of our, of our thoughts and, and actions affecting God's heart. There are even aspects of our theology that make us question whether it is proper to think this way. Yet the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks with wonderful intimacy about the nature of our God and his heart for us. He is emotionally involved with us, such that our actions cause him grief. And in the context of Ephesians, honestly, there's a lot of emphasis put on speech. It grieves God when we are speaking poorly about each other. See, as part of the Holy Spirit's work to unify us, when we start saying junk about each other that doesn't build each other up, that is grieving the heart of God. It's causing disunity. Tom preached in a, a particularly strong message on the sin of gossip when he was here. It hurts the body. It hurts us, it hurts each other, and it grieves the Holy Spirit. So those are the don'ts. So then what is the do? The do is this. Do be filled by the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, be filled by the Spirit. Now this is a weird, this is a weird verb. So like, it's, it's a command. We're commanded to be filled by the Spirit, but yet it's passive. The Holy Spirit's doing the work on us. It's almost like somebody saying, Go be eaten by a bear. Uh, okay. So, like, 
the bear tries to eat me, I won't try to resist it. Uh, that's sort of what it's saying here. You're commanded to be filled by the Spirit. An imperative passive. It's kind of like um, somebody's compared it to walking. You know, when we're young, we take every tiny step, and it's this conscious effort. But then as we get good at it, we're not thinking about it anymore. We're just walking. It doesn't require as much thought. Kids can't help but walk once they learn how. It becomes part of our day-to-day -day life. So this filling thing speaks to being completely controlled by the Spirit. And I think Wearsby helped us out with this. He said in the Bible, filled means controlled by. They were filled with wrath. It means they were controlled by wrath. And for that reason, try to kill Jesus. The Jews were filled with envy. It means that the Jews were controlled by envy and opposed the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. To be, to be filled with the Spirit means to be constantly controlled by the Spirit in our mind, emotions, and will. So we are working against envy. We are working against it. And as we are working against these things, we're being filled. It is this cooperative relationship we have with the Holy Spirit. So if I were to say, what kind of role do we play in this? We're yielding ourselves to God. Entirely to God. To His way of doing things. Not letting ourselves be controlled by our flesh. By things like bitterness and envy and spite and revenge. So to put all this together, cooperate with the Holy Spirit by yielding to Him daily. And you can even say moment by moment, you're fighting thoughts, envy, strife, bitterness. You're fighting all those things. You're cooperating with Him. And to close, I want to give you an image. I, my family used to go fishing in Canada every other year. And it was an amazing, it's almost as beautiful as the Bighorns, this area in Canada that we go fishing in. The it was a huge lake. We flew into uh, northern Ontario, and we spent a week uh, out on this lake fishing. And my dad and I were sitting in a boat, and we were watching this eagle. And I, I was watching that eagle effortless, effortlessly just get higher and higher and higher, almost as though gravity didn't exist. Now, I know it does. And when an eagle first starts to fly, it flaps its wings furiously. But then as it gets higher, it catches these things called thermals. And this warm air just keeps lifting that eagle up and up and up. And it just goes higher and soars effortlessly. And listen to the way Ken Boa matches that up with walking in the Spirit. Listen to this. Okay, I don't have that. Well, I got it right here. He said this, when we first begin following Christ, we're like eagles spreading our wings. Once we start flapping, though, we lift up. Maybe after a few tries, we're back down to the ground, but through repeated practice, we finally soar. Also in Greek, and this is interesting, the Holy Spirit is called pneuma, which means current of air. Think about what this means for us. We flap and flap, but eventually we catch the current of air and we soar. This is how the Holy Spirit works with our training. He's not only our coach, he's the power behind everything that we do.